Given the state of our country right now, I think it's pretty obvious what the word of the week is. And that word is impeachment. The House of Representatives voted to impeach Donald Trump a second time, making him the only president in United States history to ever be impeached twice. Just like you got to be a stupid motherfucker to get fired on your day off. You got to be a stupid motherfucker to get impeached twice. The impeachment now moves on to the Senate where the actual trial takes place. Now, it's estimated that 17 Republicans need to break ranks in order for Trump to be convicted of inciting a government coup. And while 10 Republicans have already broken ranks and have supported impeachment, it is doubtful that the others will join, even though, according to reports, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell privately supports impeaching Trump. You really are a profile encourage, Mitch McConnell, with your private support. Anyway, you have folks asking, what's the point of impeaching a president who is leaving office in a couple of days? You have mostly shameless Republicans arguing that impeachment is unnecessary because it will only further divide the country. Some of them have even admitted, privately of course, that they are scared to vote in favor of impeachment because they're worried about their personal safety. Well, perhaps if you hadn't spent the last four years encouraging, enabling, and inciting Trump supporters by repeating many of the same lies as the president and either ignoring or tolerating their white supremacy, then maybe you wouldn't have to be so scared. And listen, while nobody has the right to threaten anyone's life, that's kind of some punk ass shit. No one in Congress has been vilified more than AOC, Ilhan Omar, Ayanna Presley, Maxine Waters, all women of color. They've been receiving death threats from almost the moment they were elected. And you know what they did? Their damn job. Even though we know that had any of those insurrectionists got near any of those women, God knows what would have happened to them. But you know what? They still voted to impeach. But you know why I absolutely love history? Beyond it, providing us with a deeper understanding of who we are. I love history because it also shows us what not to do. So you know what history has shown us about this moment that we're in right now? Placating white feelings, capitulating to white supremacy, embracing comfort over discomfort has never solved anything. It only weakens our democracy. I can't help but think of Abraham Lincoln. Not sure how many of you listening knew this, but after emancipating the slaves and I'm putting emancipating in quotation marks for obvious historical reasons, Abraham Lincoln chose to give reparations to the slave owners, not the enslaved, not the men, women and children who had been forced into physical labor, brutally beaten, raped, had their families split apart and weren't even treated as human beings. He thought the slave owners needed to be compensated because white slave owners were so enraged that their livelihoods had been compromised. And Lincoln thought it would help unify the country if he gave them a little financial apology. I also can't help but think of how Martin Luther King Jr. was accused of dividing the nation because he had the nerve to push for voting rights, desegregation, and full equality for black people. King's opposition thought he was asking too much and he needed to stop pushing so hard. You know, give racists more time to get used to this idea of treating black people with respect and dignity. 
King wasn't seen then as the great humanitarian that he's seen as now. He was hated by the majority of people in this country, which is why they killed him. What we're seeing unfold in this country right now is white supremacy and racism in all of its natural glory. What is the logic in having built-in safeguards to prevent presidents from becoming dictators and abusing the law if you aren't actually going to use the safeguards? This isn't about Donald Trump. This is about establishing a precedent where behavior like his is considered to be a punishable offense. The president of the United States tried to kill members of Congress and even you could argue his own vice president. He told these assholes to show up at the Capitol and carry out a mission that is built on a lie. As we have found out since the riots occurred, many of the people who showed up were ex-military, current and former members of law enforcement. They came there with the intention of violence. Five people were killed, including a Capitol police officer. Since the riot, conservatives have been calling for unity because they know They have betrayed the country, but there can't be unity without any justice. And you damn sure can't unify with people who tried to get you killed because several Republican lawmakers were egging on these rioters, showing that they didn't give a shit about the safety of their own colleagues. You don't just move on from an insurrection and treason. Look no further than the Civil War and the history of racism in this country. Instead of treating those who betrayed this country like the Germans treated former Nazi leaders, we built monuments and statues in their name. We allowed states to fly Confederate flags. We built bridges and named them after racial terrorists. We named buildings and schools after traitors and KKK leaders. The reason you don't find statues and monuments of Nazi leaders in Germany is because they understood They would never heal unless there was real justice. They paid reparations to the Jews, not to the Nazis. They labeled Nazi leaders war criminals and sent many of them to jail for what they did to Jews. We will never heal as a nation as long as we continue to make peace and play nice with racist and white supremacists. In the words of Bernice King, the daughter of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., we can't skip justice and get to peace. So impeach this motherfucker. The word of the week. Now on to today's podcast. My guest today is a rising star, one of the best young actors in Hollywood. He stars in the incredible series Snowfall, which returns for its fourth season on February 24th. And I can't wait to share with him in a few moments exactly how I got into his show. Very interesting story. He also has a movie coming out on Netflix called Outside the Wire, in which he stars alongside Anthony Mackie. And it looks absolutely incredible. He is living his full Mama I Made It moment. And I cannot wait to talk to him about it. Coming up next on Jamel Hill is Unbothered, Damson Idris. So, um, Damson, I'm going to start by giving you some information that is completely useless to you. But nevertheless, I am telling you this only because I made a promise to a friend of mine, uh, the woman who braids my hair 
and you're like, where's the story going? <laughs> the woman who braids my hair is one of your biggest fans. In fact, I started watching Snowfall because I get my hair braided. It usually takes a long time. This is where I get my most TV watching done. And of course, the her favorite show of the moment at that time was Snowfall. So I literally binge watched season one while I was getting my hair braided. <laughs> and she was and I told her I was interviewing her. Her name is Maritha. And I, I, I was interviewing you today and she was like, you got to tell him I'm his biggest fan. I love the show. Like she just goes on and on. So to fulfill the promise to my braider, Maritha, I am telling you, she is your biggest fan in Inglewood. That is her. Bless you. Thank you, darling. Thank you. But um, the show is is really, really spectacular. Um, and I, I know you've had a very interesting journey into getting to it. And it was kind of like your your breakout moment. Um, the character, Franklin, and as somebody who is of a certain age, who is seasoned, I remember this era of the crack era quite well, even though I'm not from Los Angeles, I'm from Detroit. So that's where I grew up where this was taking place. But this character, despite um, uh, many ups and downs and being involved in many shady things, but yet, you know, showing some humanity really resonates with people. Franklin does. Why do you think that is? I just think he represents a bunch of young kids who were placed in that situation unwillingly. Um, there's an interesting documentary on Netflix, which I watched just last night. It's, it's about crack. Um, and it's kind of what Singleton always preached to me, is that not everyone got into the selling of crack cocaine because they wanted to be gangsters or these kingpins and, and do these treacherous things. They got in because they were in hardship times and they wanted to provide for their families. And then stuff took a turn and then they ended up doing what they had to do. So I think a lot of people in America and around the world relate to that, specifically uh, in, of the Black experience. Um, the majority of Black people in the world are in poverty. So they kind of relate to that in a sense that if there's no other options, what can we turn to? So I think that's why Franklin is what people resonate with. Now, season four, as we're taping this, season four, I believe, starts February 24th. Is that correct? Yeah. What do you like the most about how they've evolved the character? Wow. When we first met Franklin, he was really green. You know, he he didn't know what he was doing. He was getting beat up every two seconds. Um, he did take some ass whoopers. I'm not going to lie. Good, good. Yeah, I learned a lot as well just as an actor of how to be on the ground and roll around. Uh, <laughs> but but as we, as we transition into season four, the sad part about it is that kid that we all love, that smiley kid, uh, that smile starting to fade away. That spirit starting to fade away. He's a lot more cold. Just as an actor, it's beautiful to see that arc, to play a character like that, to play someone who from one season loves wrestling, the girl next door, um, Bruce Lee, uh, you know, hanging out with his friends, uh, going to the valley and swimming. And then all of a sudden now he's controlling a bunch of people and has... I'd say in season four, Franklin's got about $24 million now. Wow. Nino Brown territory. There's <laughs> <laughs> a huge transition, but the, the, the main importance I want people to take away from this season is just that this isn't something that's being glorified. You know, this is a, a true story, a, a serious story. And I think uh, as well as it's entertaining, and that's the job of all of us people in the arts, it's also informative. I definitely want to get into some of your new projects outside the wire and farming. Um, but 
you know, with now John, John as in John Singleton, not no longer being with us, how much did that maybe change the energy on set, the feel on the show? You know, what's different without him being there? Oh, there's a bunch that's different. Um, John was like a kid, you know? I always used to say that he, um, his passion was really infectious and it traveled through a crew. And then before you know it, everyone's acting like a kid. For that reason, everyone's able to play. Um, I remember I'd do something cool in the take and he'd be like, that's it, that's it, that's what I'm talking about. And you know, everyone would get so excited when we pleased John. So that's what we're missing. Um, there's a chair with his name on it on set that we keep there to let him know that he's still with us. But above all things, what people have taken away, particularly in Snowfall, is the codes that John gave us all individually. He was a people person and everyone had their own unique relationships with John. And taking that knowledge and going forward in season four and hopefully season five and six, we're able to implement exactly what John wanted and make it proud. And I think after February 24th, you know, a lot, there's a lot of people, they, well, before Corona, <laughs> before we were allowed to walk on the street, um, they'd stop me on the street and be like, I love that show, but man, John, though, man. How's it going to work without John, man? Is it still going to be good? I'm going to tap in, though. I'm going to tap in. But if the first episode ain't good, I'm going to blame it on you. I'm going to say it's because John ain't here. And, um, and, <laughs> and No pressure. No pressure at all. <laughs> John's looking down at me like, don't you mess this up, boy. But, um, but yeah, man, after February 24th and after what I've seen and after what I've heard about this season, I promise you, we will not let you down. We won't let John down. I'm sure people have noticed just in in you giving that answer, just how perfectly you meld in and out of an American accent. It's because I'm stuck here. They won't let me go home. That's, no. Right? Exactly. Exactly. Right? It's never coming back now, right? Um, I think most of us who are Americans marvel at how easily British actors are able to pick up an American accent. Why is it that American actors are so shitty at British accents? <laughs> it's because you guys won't cool up Damson and say, hey, bro, I want to come visit you in London. That's why. Because I call up all my American friends. I'm like, hey, let me come to um, Miami for a bit. I just want to kick it with you for a month. Or let me come to New York, you know? So it's just about that travel. Once more, um, Americans are my peers. You know, I, I mean, I, all I do is hang out with actors who are American, you know? And like, damn, I'm coming to London, man. I'll come to London. And when they come, you know, I'm going to immerse them in the culture. And unfortunately, um, just from a UK side, there hasn't been a lot of art that has moved and come to the States, you know? I wouldn't say since probably Top Boy, which is on Netflix, that really shows an inner city experience. And it isn't just tea and crumpets and everyone sounding like the characters in the favorite, you know? There are loads of people in London who talk like that, but there's also loads of people in London who talk like me, people from Peckham, Brixton, Tottenham, who, are the exact South Central Bronx equivalent. It's just that they're over the pond, you know? And this is why I was able to tap into Franklin so deeply because the characters that are on Snowfall are my brothers and cousins and uncles back home. So um, I think as we go forward, you're going to start seeing more Americans play Brits and I can't wait to see it because it's going to be, it's just going to make the industry so much more fun and so amazing to watch. But you know, you, you you do have the right to clown them over some of the accents. 
You know, you know, I, I love Halle Berry, like, but <laughs> sometimes it would be kind of funny listening to her when she was, you know, playing Storm and X-Men. <laughs> Logan, Logan. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know, man. There's, there's been some bad ones, man. I won't say no names, but it's been some, there's been some bad ones. I wish I had their number and you know, coached them a bit. But, but yeah, going forward, I know it's just going to get better and, and, and I, I'm excited for it. There's an actress I know called uh, Sydney Park who's got Brit, um, a brilliant British accent. She hasn't played a Brit yet, but and um, when we hang out and she does it, like I'm like, oh my gosh, like you need to play a Brit. So people, people are coming. People, I'm telling all my little friends, I'm like, hey, they're coming. <laughs> they're coming. You hit on something important. Is that when it comes to what culture translates to which one? Is that uh, um, we don't get unless it's a period piece or something very specific. We do not get overhear that influx of British culture that I imagine you get of American culture. So growing up, yeah, what American shows or movies did you did you watch? Every single one. There's a video of me. I think it's on my Instagram. I'm six years old. My sister, she wanted to be a journalist at the time, so she'd always record me, right? She'd also make me marry her doll, but we won't talk about it. So, so, um... Oh, no, we're going to get into that. (laughs) And just so everybody knows, breaking news, people, Damson is married to a doll. So I just want you to know. Yeah, I was married at eight years old to a doll, yeah. Um, so I'm six years old and said, what's your favorite movie? And I say, Bad Boys and Low Down Dirty Shame. I mean, what, come on, what six-year-old is saying that, you know? Um, but this is just what we grew up on, you know? Everything about my upbringing was American. I used to sit for hours and watch Deaf Comedy Jam and, and you know, mimic Chris Tucker. And- you weren't watching like light stuff. I mean, a lot of cussing, a lot of. No, I didn't know until I was like 20. <laughs> but yeah, and music too, you know. Um, you know, and the, the reason why a lot of Brits, I, I think what it is, is the reason why a lot of Brits are, are good at doing the American accent, um, not perfect, but good at it, just from like, a, hey, do an American accent and, and they could have a, a sense of it. It's because of the music. Right, music is so powerful. I remember when I was growing up and I was listening to all these slow jams because that's what my older sisters and brothers were playing, you know. And I'd go to school and I'd be singing, you know, "Keep Sweat" to a table of like six girls. <laughs> were you like make it last forever? <laughs> exactly. But hey, I'm not singing in a British accent though. I'm singing in an American accent. I'm doing a Keep Sweat impersonation essentially. Well, I would say there's an um, there's an American accent and then there's a Keith Sweat accent. Those are two different things. <laughs> that's, that's true. That's very true. Can you do a little Keith Sweat? Can you give me some Keith Sweat? I mean, oh, you know, it's the morning. I haven't taken my ginger sh- shot yet. You know, I took my ginger <laughs> shot. I, I All right, I won't put you on the spot <laughs> anymore. Um, but that's interesting because I know in Hollywood, as you know, um, being in the industry, often an excuse used to um, kind of lowball black movies and black talent is by saying that the culture does uh, like black culture doesn't translate overseas. So that's interesting that you said growing up that this is what you listen to, you know, it's shocking to me, you know, because when I look at the hardship of, and I hate to call it black Hollywood, I, I call it Hollywood now. It's the new normal. So me and John used to say, you know, it's the new normal. Uh, diversity is the new normal. And just from being a part of it, you know, I've been in 
been working in the States since 2015, you know, six years. And if you think of um, just kind of the hardships and the barriers that we've jumped over in the industry to kind of create diversity, I've been right here with it, screaming it, talking about it in interviews, pushing for change alongside everyone else. But it was interesting coming here and seeing them fight for that. Because when I was in the UK, I thought, you know, Eddie Murphy and all of these people were living the dream. I didn't even think that they had any hardship. I didn't think that it, it was a struggle for them. The only person that was on TV when I was growing up was this amazing comedian called Lenny Henry. Like that's, that's who I was. There's like one or two people, you know? So, and that's, that barrier is still being knocked down in the UK. So to see Americans say um, that there's still far to go, it just put every other industry in the world into perspective. If these guys who we look at, who we believe are where we want to be already, are still fighting to move forward, then we've got a whole lot of work to do back here in the UK, in France, in Brazil, in Africa, everywhere. We really do need to transcend and, and create diversity. And I think moving into 2021, we're starting to see that. So it's a beautiful thing. Some of that is is also on, on us, is that I think here in America, we need to understand that racism is a global issue. It's not, while we may have perfected many forms of it in America, but it's not just us um, that, you know, go through and have to deal with that in society. Uh, with that said, what do Black Brits, what's their perception of African-Americans? <laughs> I, I, I'm going to be honest, man. Um, yeah, be, 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 keep it 100. Because <laughs> I, I am traveling overseas. I'll say this before you answer. Some of what I've heard from um, uh, people in other countries, black people in other countries, what they think about African-Americans has been very enlightening and interesting. All I got to say is I blame BET for some, <laughs> to, <laughs> to some degree. But go ahead. Give me your honest, give me your honest assessment. The honest assessment is all positive. It's admiration. That's the word that comes to mind. Um, just from a sense of how Americans have lifted up their, their, their fights, you know, the, the, the giants, the way they've lifted them up, the Sidney Poitiers, the Harry Belafontes, and just outside of the industry as well, the Martin Luther Kings, the Malcolm Xs. These are huge icons that we, when we're growing up in the UK, are saying, oh, that's my icon too, you know? We're not saying there's a, we, we don't have knowledge of a, 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 a black British Malcolm X, you know? And this is why we don't have knowledge of it. We're learning of them now, you know, with the darkest house and, and shows like Small Axe, which is commenting on the, the, the heroism of, of black British people and from the Windrock generation and, and forward. But growing up from a young offset, yeah, they might not teach you in school, but an auntie or someone's going to tell you, hey, Malcolm X, hey, Martin Luther King. They were all American. So I will say that from the ages of zero to 20 um, and beyond, Brits definitely look at Americans in admiration. And I think that's probably why a lot of Brits want to come here and, and work, because they feel like over here, I'm around, I'm around black people. <laughs> like in the UK, I'm... I'm I'm one of of so many white people, and there's nothing wrong with being around white people. But one thing I learned growing up is there's nothing greater than seeing someone that looks like you doing well, because it absolutely lets you know that it's possible for you too. And that's how we see America. Well, I mean, there are 
obviously very big and thriving black British communities um, in the UK. But, uh, you know, do you get I, I take you get a difference of, you know, feeling if you're like on the south side of L.A. or um in uh you know if you're in a chicago or whatever like these majority black cities are like atlanta it's funny because i grew up in peckham you know i grew up in southeast london um i didn't know about racism until a lot later unless it was an interaction with a police officer uh, the white people that lived near me were baroque you know um so we were we were all it wasn't even oh that's a black guy and that's a white guy no we're just broke <laughs> you know um like that's a broke guy. <laughs> exactly. And I think that's the difference. I think there's more um, of an intersection of cultures of poverty in the UK compared to the States. So when you come to the States. Are we, are we, are we more segregated? Exactly. And this goes back to interracial dating. It goes back to many things, you know. Um, I, I always talk about the Windrush generation because a lot of those Caribbeans who came over to the UK um, got all white guys. <laughs> You know, <laughs> it's just it, it, a lot of that happened. Um, um, I did a play called The Dugout at the Tobacco Factory in Bristol, and it was deeply rooted in that. And it was two black leads, and we were dating white girls. And um, it, it, it was it was something that transcended. It was it was something that was kind of cool. You know, white people would come to the Caribbean parties, and and that's shown in Lovers Rock as well. Um, but this is this is this is what it is. I think interracial dating. I think segregation. Um, it's something that you guys have had way longer than us. Um, but at the same time, it's made you guys stronger. Yeah, um, in, in some respects, <laughs> though, I, I think there's a bit of a, um, you know, obviously with everything that's happening right now. Um, yeah, I, I should ask you that. Is that because, you know, I assume most of your family is, is overseas because of um, the rioting that happened at the Capitol this period of political turbulence and violence that we're in now, what kind of conversations have they, they had with you about this? Like, are they, are they worried about your safety? Oh yeah. <laughs> my mom pulled me up straight away. What's crazy is, I mean, I've been in, I've been in my apartment playing Call of Duty, you know, when those headphones are on, um, I'm, I'm just, I'm just in, in Badaksk, you know, Badaksk, <laughs> um, if you know, it's a Call of Duty players now. Uh, <laughs> so I'm just playing there. Um, so I didn't know about the capital stuff happening until I turned off the game and then my phone was blowing up. And then I saw what was happening. And the first thing that came to mind was same old, same old. Same old, same old. And change is definitely going to happen and we're seeing it now in the press. Uh, we're seeing it now in Congress. I, I, I don't like to talk too much about politics because I don't feel like I'm in those rooms enough. Um, I will say I'm standing behind those people on those front lines. Um, my wallet is behind those people on those front lines. And, and, and I think that's the best way a lot of artists can contribute is, is through their wallets. Um, there's many ways through their art, through their wallets and through being on those front lines. Uh, I heard that. Um, speaking of your family, um, you're Nigerian, correct? All right. And so me, I have a, a lot of Nigerian friends and they they often make jokes about how their parents like they don't play when it comes to achievement and education. And, right. Like there's a there's a very set standard um, usually that Nigerian parents establish. So I know you're the youngest of six and I've seen, you know, interviews where you've talked about what your siblings do. 
It's like lawyer IT. <laughs> and here you are, the actor. I'm curious, how did how did your mom, how did your your parents feel about you acting? Because that's so off script compared to the rest of your family. You know, I remember one of my brothers one time, he was like, you know, if you don't make it like 25, you should come do this IT thing with me. I'm making some good money. <laughs> and I was like, ah, maybe. And you know, I, I even worked with my brother at his, and my brother has a, an independent law firm, you know, and I went to work there. You know, so I was doing them papers and stuff. I remember what they do in them offices, but, <laughs> but um, I was working with him, you know, and I, I remember I prayed that day. I said, God, if you give me this TV job, I would pray to you every single morning. And there was a role on BBC called Doctors. And prior to that, I'd been working in theater. And my mom, she, did, she doesn't know about acting. You know, she watches, I guess you guys would call it bold and beautiful, right? She watches that equivalent yes. in the UK. It's like EastEnders. Okay, soap operas. Okay. Yeah, Coronation Street, back okay. to back. So her dream for me was, oh, when are you going to get on Hollywood? So... EastEnders, That's, she always would say that, right? Because I was working in the theater. And the truth of it was she just wanted me to continue to progress because prior to that, my family supported me um, trying to become a football player, soccer player. So when that didn't work out, they were like, okay, now he's going on to something else that's wild. And he's 23, he's working in these plays. We need to start sitting him down and, and letting him know the reality. You know, he's not making a lot of money. He's not able to fend for himself. I think I had a 200-pound car note on a BMW back then that I could never pay. I'd call my brother up and be like, it's one of those moms, man. Yeah, yeah, I know. Again, yeah, I know. <laughs> let, me, let, let me hold 400 real quick. But, <laughs> but, um, but, but as soon as I started making those strides, man, they got behind me 100%. And the biggest... Um, Evidence of that was when I was auditioning for Snowfall on my second audition. I went back to London and then single term, my managers, they called me and they said, they need you back next week for the recall. And I didn't have any money. And my family, my family, 200 pounds, 200 pounds, 100 pounds, all of them. Even my nephew gave me a little, a little 50 pounds. <laughs> And um, I paid for my Airbnb and I was able to fly over. And that was the support system that led to the road. What did your pregnant. mom think about you working in the in the States, though? Was she was she worried? I mean, because I, I, you know, I can only imagine with some of the headlines that trickle out about things happening in America, especially talking about Los Angeles, you know, like what what was her level of concern? There was there was um, only one thing she said. You better not do any cocaine. That's what she always used to say. And then here I am, self cocaine on TV. <laughs> uh, I was about to say, did you tell her what the role, what it entailed? Oh, <laughs> uh, she was like, "Is the cocaine real?" I'm like, "No, mom. It's, it's the cocaine, sugar, sugar." But um, no, prior to that, she always used to say, you know, because she loves um, Idris Elba, and my last name is Idris. So when I started acting, they would always say, "Oh." Your son, he's, he's acting now. Um, are, you, are you related to Idris Elba? That was my life from the beginning. Like, oh my God. When I first started acting, I couldn't hear, are you related to Idris Elba more than mine? And it's crazy now that we're good friends because it's just weird. But she would always say, you need to go to America like Idris Elba. She would always say that. Um, so yeah, she was behind me, man. And she knew that um, at the time in America was well, I would make most strides. Yeah, um, though you have to admit, like, I mean, that's not like the worst person to be related to. <laughs> you 
Yeah. It, it, it kind of works. Exactly. And I think he one year he got um sexiest man, right? And we was at this British Vogue party. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm baby Idris. This is what people always call me in, in Vogue, like in our, our little gang, I'm baby Idris. And um, I'm in there, I'm in my orange suit, I'm feeling good. Like people are coming around me like, oh, I loved you in your movie farming. I'm like, yeah, yeah, give me, give me all that, give me all that. And then Idris Elba walks into this party, right? He walks into it. It's, I'm standing right here, it's me, Chiwetel, and he walks into the party and everyone just goes, like, like meerkats, like, they rush to the room, to the other side of the room. It just walks in with his wife, Sabrina, he's walking in in his trench coat. He just got sexiest man. I'm like, oh, I need to get sexiest man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, come right back with more um more conversation with Idris Elba. No, I'm kidding. Damson <laughs> Idris. That was pretty good. Uh, good. I kid, I kid, I joke. More in a moment with more with Damson. What can you tell me about Outside the Wire? I'm so excited about this movie. Outside the Wire is set in the future of 2036, and it follows a young, hothead drone pilot who, as punishment, is sent into a militarized zone alongside his new android officer, played by Anthony Mackie, in order to locate a deadly doomsday device before the insurgents do. Um, it's fast-paced, it's entertaining, it's funny, it's too... Strong black leads, which we haven't seen alongside robots before, I don't think. And it's just, it's just a, a movie that a lot of people are going to see themselves in because, I mean, you talk about shows like Snowfall that people resonate to. Here you are seeing Damps and Idris in, in a different light, but you already relate to him. So you feel like, oh, I could be fighting soldiers too. You know, it's, I just think it's a, a movie that, especially for young people, they're going to be able to believe that they could do anything. Um, such a great film because I've never done a movie like this before. You know, I've always worked on kind of smaller characters and smaller independent films. So to work with the CGI, to work with Mackie and see his process, to work with all these explosions, it's beautiful to see. And, and going forward, it's definitely the type of movies I'm going to do more. Uh, how do you prepare for this kind of role? Wow. Um, so I play Lieutenant Thomas Hart. Now, he's a drone pilot operating out of Creech Air Force Base in Nevada. And he's sent to Camp Nathaniel after he makes a mistake. He tries to save um, 38 men on a mission and ends up sacrificing some. And for that reason, they're going to court martial him, but they don't because he's such a brilliant drone pilot. So they send him to experience what it's like to be a Marine so he can understand how bad it is when he's pushing those buttons. But to his surprise, he's thrust into working with Anthony Mackie. He thought he's going to be guarding a fence, but Mackie straight away, played, um, his character's called Leo, uh, he, he says we need to go on this mission. The way I prepare for a character like that is to not prepare. Um, I learn everything about what it's like to sit in a cockpit, uh, the PTSD of drone pilots, what they go through. There was so much work I did on just getting into the mind state of, how it feels to sit on a chair just like this and to watch a location for months and learn 
about everyone in that location. That little girl who sells bread on Mondays, that boy who kicks that ball, that family that live over there. And as soon as that target goes into that position, you need to press a button and forget about that little girl, that little boy, and that family. That's insane trauma. That's huge PTSD. And I think there was an Ethan Hawke movie that I watched that really resonated with me where he played a drone pilot and it, it speaks on that as well. And then when I go to be a Marine, I didn't want to know anything. I didn't want to have great experiences with holding a gun. I didn't want to have great experience with, you know, Mackie does these amazing running scenes. <laughs> I wanted Hawk to have a stitch all the time. You know, this is a guy that sits on a chair and eats gummy bears. He isn't supposed to be this amazing Chris Hemsworth. <laughs> you know, he's supposed to be this fatigued guy um, who's overcoming adversity. So it was the first time that I got to be really bad at my job. And it was interesting. <laughs> uh, you also have a, another project that's out, Farming, which already is receiving a lot of critical acclaim. Um, what does that mean to you that, it, that a lot of critics look at it as really a, a great piece of work? It's really special because that's the greatest uh, award for an actor. You know, they, many actors say, oh, it's not about the awards. Uh, yeah, right. Um, <laughs> you know, there's a reason why everyone talks about Sidney Poitier the most because he, he not only was the, was he the first to do it, but but he 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 got that trophy. You know, and it's not so much about saying Oscar nominated da 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 da. It's about being seen, and this is why Oscar so white and initiatives like that were so important because people really pour their souls blood, sweat, and tears into these roles. And they want someone to say, I saw that, and hey, that was pretty good. It's not about the trophies. It's about someone seeing it. And what was happening for many years was our work wasn't being seen. So with a movie like Farming, to win the Edinburgh Film Festival Award, to win the Screen Nation Award, um, to be nominated for various others, was important to me, or was important to Adwale, whose story it was about. Uh, it was important to everyone involved, but it was important to all those young people who struggled to learn their identity. It was an award for them. So that's why it was special. Of all the things you've done, what is your mom like the most? <laughs> uh, it's interesting because um, she doesn't think anything's real. Before she used to, but now she doesn't. It's like, she she really doesn't think anything is real. Like, like, but at the beginning, she thought everything was real. She thought the cocaine was real. You know, she, if I had like an intimate scene, she'd be like, oh, how can you cheat on your, your girlfriend like that? And it's the, in front of the whole world. <laughs> you know, so she's, she's starting to learn the mystery of the arts. Um, and the greatest thing is when you bring your mom to those premieres, you know, and you're on that red carpet. And she's telling those photographers, take one more. You know, she's the star. <laughs> she's the star. I just sit back and watch, you know, she, she created this. Um, uh, and and my, my biggest aim as actors is to just make her proud. So with every role, I'm adding more brownies to that. Who's the most surprising fan of Snowfall that you've met? There's been a lot. 
or are you some you don't you know you don't have to i guess single out just one but uh just some of the most where you're like i can't believe you watch the show because you never know who's watching yeah um i'm gonna say naomi campbell shot me that's a pretty good one yeah yeah and then we're good friends um it was at a vanity fair oscar party i love you i was like naomi campbell oh my god <laughs> i was flabbergasted um she loves the show. That was a huge, a huge show. The, the brilliant thing about about, um, about the show was was how a lot of people in our industry who were cherishing today and who were giving our flowers to today were born around the eighties, you know. So they all know about this time, and to see a show like that, aside from how informative it is and how entertaining it is, it's nostalgic. In these characters, they see that guy that lived up the street that they fancied. They see their uncle, they see their aunt, they see their little brother. Um, I think that's why when they see me, they don't really see me as Damson Idris, the 29-year-old that was born in 1991. They see Damson Idris, who was born in the 80s. <laughs> and, and that's a beautiful thing. Now that you're obviously you're making a living, doing what you love and, and, and what you dreamed of doing, when you started making a little bit of money, what was the obnoxious thing that you bought for yourself? Obnoxious. <laughs> I'm going to go back to the beginning. My first play, they would pay me 400 pounds a week. My agents would take around, I think, 80. I'm, I'm giving you all the math right now. Um, I had 320 left. I spent all of that money and 30 pounds I had saved on Prada shoes. Honestly, man, it was the most Peckham thing to do, man. Uh, but, but I had to do it. Uh, we love Prada back in Peckham. Um, and yeah, I, I spent all my money on Prada shoes, man. My first acting check. Didn't spend it on food uh, or important things. I spent it on Prada shoes. Now I just buy like Ferraris and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> That's better. Um, where are those shoes now? I think my nephew has them. <laughs> my nephew probably wears them, I think. Yeah, I think my nephew's got them. Oh, man. Hey, there's a lot of sweat, blood, and tears went into those. So, yeah, I'm going to get those shoes back. You, um, you're you in an action movie. Um, Outside the Wire is an action movie that, that'll be on Netflix. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about whether or not the next James Bond should be black. I know Idris Elba has obviously been mentioned uh, in this capacity. But um, him, whether it's him or, 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 or somebody else, maybe potentially another black actor, you think audiences are ready for a black James Bond? I think audience are ready for any black anything. Uh, <laughs> I think it needs to be forced upon them um, so that it's normalized. It's always going to be bad to lead up to the movie, especially for whatever person gets that gig. They need to, I'd say, go into a cave and hide and not look at their phone and just focus on the work, not let anything put them off because um, those trolls will come for them. But when the movie comes out and it's in the universe, now it's undeniable. When that movie makes a billion dollars, pounds, it's undeniable. And I think that's the only way people are gonna be ready to normalize it. Now, I mean, I'm just saying you 29, they start a, fr a bond franchise with you now. I'm, you can ride this. I'm six two. You know what I'm saying? I'm, look, I'm just putting it out there. <laughs> we, we we keep working. We keep going. <laughs> yeah, uh, I would personally like to see it. I mean, you know, obviously, I don't I don't know Idris Elba, but 
I would have loved to see them give it give it a try because I think he would he would be perfect. But I know he's not going to do it probably. But I think he would be. Yeah, been I just for what it could symbolize and what it would mean and advancing, you know, kind of the culture for it. I would have loved to see this happen. I hope it does happen. It doesn't have to be him, but in my lifetime, I want to see a black James Bond. Of course. But in the meantime, um, everyone should watch Lupin on Netflix, which is great. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Which is the same essence, which proves that it can be done successfully. Yeah. How much did you watch of him in the wire? All of it. All of it. Okay. Did that give you any level of direction with Franklin? I mean, I know they're sort of different kind of drug kingpins, you know what I'm saying? But um, Franklin's a little grittier, to be honest, in some respects. Yeah. I did admire Idris's um, prestige that he brought to a character who grew up in the hood. That was interesting. Denzel's Frank Lucas gave me that too. People could come from one place, but still wear a suit. Um for that role of Franklin, I looked at Brian Cranston's Breaking Bad. I looked at um, Denzel's Frank Lucas. And I looked at Caesar, Andy Serkis, in Planet of the Apes. Really? Those are the three characters I used to create Franklin. Yeah, I mean, I I love American Gangster. That's 100% alpaca. <laughs> like, that's like my... I always pick, like, literally the most obscure lines that I remember all the time, but... Him and that alpaca boy, I tell you. Put club soda on there. <laughs> you got to blot that shit. <laughs> Iconic. Uh, it's my favorite movie in the world. Well, um, speaking of your favorite things, before I get you out of here, there is a game I play with all my guests, Damson. It's called This or That. The choice is yours. You can oh. get with this or you can get with that. Or you can oh. get with this or you can get with that. You can oh. get with this or you can get with that. I, I give you two choices. You got to pick one. And that's just how it is. Like, don't try to weasel out of it. This is what it is. <laughs> so first off, and these are usually built off things that I know may be close to your heart. So I'm forcing you into tough choices on purpose. So first off, Nando's or Miss Lily's? Wow, you've been doing some serious research. I know things. I know things. I'm a journalist. You're going to hit me with that or out the gate? Out the gate. Oh. I covered the World Cup in South Africa in 2010. That's when I got my first Nando's experience. I know about the peri-peri sauce. I know about all of it. Oh, this is, this is a good game. Uh, wow. And Miss Lily's is a Jamaican spot in New York for people who don't know. Yeah, I, I have to see Nando's. I, I was, Nando's. Sorry, Miss Lily's. I love you. <laughs> but you got to go with Nando's. Um, since you've been here, I mean, you've been here for a while, though, but I mean... Is there any American chicken joints that could compete to you with Nando's? Like Chick-fil-A, Popeye's? Oh, yeah. Oh, ooh. compete? Mm-hmm. Roscoe's. Roscoe's. Okay, that's a good one, right? Tell me you've had the Popeye's chicken sandwich, though. Tell me you've had this. I have. I, but it was a little bit overrated, though. I don't know. I don't know. Your eyes popped up. <laughs> y'all, know, y'all know where to find them on social media. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. Uh, all right. You, you went with Nando's over Miss Lily. Um, Ronaldinho or Christian Ronaldo? These are such good questions. Oh, my Lord. Oh. Ronaldinho. Ronaldinho. I love you, Ronaldo. Uh, Christian Ronaldo. I love you. Oh, Ronaldinho. Ronaldinho. Yeah. I'm looking. My, my face is down because I feel like he's looking at me. But Ronaldinho. <laughs> he's judging you right now. <laughs> oh, man. 
now did that take any getting used to for you is the fact i mean i think soccer is popular in the states but obviously it's not what it means you know over uh, across the pond did that take some getting used to that you're in a culture now that doesn't american football is is the most important probably i was shocked man I, i landed i hooked up with some people i was like yo i need to go see man united play arsenal Football's on. But like football? What you mean football? You know, football, kick the ball. You mean soccer? I was like, don't you dare call it soccer. <laughs> football, we kick the ball, okay? You better change the NFL name to, to handball or something. Ours is football. <laughs> but um, yeah, it was. But what was beautiful was to see America's reaction to the World Cup because I did a World Cup over there. And wow. Americans were going hard for the World Cup. Yeah, we're we're getting there. We're a little slow behind you guys. We're getting there. Um, along those same lines, would you rather score a goal in the World Cup or be nominated for an Oscar? <laughs> Your reactions to this are the best. <laughs> nominated for an Oscar. That was a tough choice for you. I mean, you're a former soccer player or football player, excuse me. So I know that's a tough choice. Yeah, it is. All right, you're going to take an Oscar nomination. Since you uh, brought this up as one of your favorite movies, um, or maybe your favorite movie, uh, American Gangster or Boys in the Hood? That is bad of you, you know? That's really bad. We were doing so well until I started asking you these questions. Ooh, streets are looking, looking at me now. Oh, Boys in the Hood. Boys in the Hood, yeah. Still a classic. Mm-hmm. It's amazing how timeless that is. Now, um, you mentioned, although you borrowed Although you looked at Frank Lewis's, not Burl, you looked at his character just for inspiration or to to, to um, get some creativity going. Um, was Boys in the Hood a part of your understanding and trying to, you know, just kind of get a better feel for John Singleton? 100%. Um, funny, John made Boys in the Hood the year I was born, right? which is so interesting. I remember being 25 and it was like the anniversary. La- Larry Fishburne's character is what I looked at. Just that focus, Franklin's relationship with his dad, um, that would have been Lawrence Fishburne. That, that's the same essence, the same type of character. So I definitely looked at that. But above all things, is just for the times, you know, to see, okay, this is what we're creating and to see what the end of it is going to look like. Because Boys in the Hood is after Snowflake. So to see those gated up houses, to see the addiction, um, there's always that scene, which I wish was longer, when Trey, um, get your baby in the house, don't let your baby run out in the street. That scene is so, was so important. I watched that scene probably a hundred times, you know, just to see his relationship with the mom. It's like she wasn't even there. It was about the kid. It was about society turning their backs on, on people who were addicted. It wasn't a health crisis. It was a criminal crisis. And, you know, we see it today with the opioid crisis and how differently that's being dealt with. It was interesting to just see the weight of what Franklin was doing. And, you know, someone the other day said something, probably the only Snowball fan in the world um, I was reading on uh, like an Instagram or Twitter or something. Uh, Franklin's the real villain. That's what somebody said. Hmm. All right. And finally, 
I'll get you off the hot seat with this one. Bitch, don't kill my vibe or all right. Wow. Your boy, Kendrick Lamar. Because <laughs> at times, all right, all right, all right. All right. Yeah. I mean, that's a that's an anthem because we going to be all right. <laughs> right. Yes, we will. Yeah, that's a That's an anthem. <laughs> that's a that's a move. But, you know, we all need a little bitch. Don't kill my vibe. <laughs> and we do. So what's your choice? What you got? <laughs> <laughs> all right. I'm definitely going to do all right. That's me. Well, you did more than all right on what was very difficult questions that you answered truthfully and honestly. That man Miss Lilies. You came out the gate. It's still sitting with you right now. You feel like you want to run out to Miss Lilies right now just to make up for it. <laughs> Why is there no Nando's and Miss Lilies in, in L.A.? Do I need to build this thing? I think you might need to. I'm actually more surprised there's not a Nando's than a, than a Miss Lilies. I mean, that's like kind of a really... I found it to be a really New York kind of thing. But Nando's, I feel like, you know, is is a little different. Chicago and DC and I think Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You gotta lead the revolution on that and getting it here. Yeah. And and by the way, I, I feel like you need to give the Popeye's chicken sandwich another run, the spicy one. You need to give it another run. Cause I, I feel like you really you really disrespect. Why was the bread soggy? It shouldn't have been soggy. You know, you know how it is. It's like you gotta look. I go to the Popeyes in Inglewood. They always do me right. That's all I'm saying. You gotta make sure you pick the right Popeyes. I remember I went to Popeyes in Inglewood when I first got to America. Dub C took me there. <laughs> um, it was my first time having Popeyes, and my eyes. You know, you know when that old guy in Ratatouille when he's in a restaurant he eats the food and his eyes. That was me when I took a bite into that biscuit and I dipped it in that honey. That was. Marvelous, whoever. Yeah, that was that was brilliant. Uh, WC as from West High Connection, correct? He was one of your tutors, and when it came to learning how to have an American accent, yeah, he taught me how to walk the walk. And and you know, Dub C, he always says he's like, "Man, you had this down packed already, man. I'm just I'm just here to get my check." <laughs> no, played. He never said. But he he the, the brilliant thing about Dub C is he'd always use this analogy from season one. He'd say. You're a brilliant actor. And you have this. You have this. They wouldn't have cost you if you couldn't do the accent already. Tom Brady's still got a coach that teaches him how to throw every now and then. He would always say that. So that's why I always kept up with me. And some people will say, oh, but you've got this. You can go in and out of the accent. Da, 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 da. Just seeing Dub C after a take, and he's in the corner and he's like, he always does that. <laughs> That is what motivates me, having Dub C behind me all the time. So that's why he's always going to be with me. Well, Damson, you have a long, wonderful career ahead of you. It's like you're just getting started, but you're doing the most. That's like the perfect spot to be in, right? Um, I look forward to seeing Outside the Wire. January 15th. Yep. And seeing you handle some folks. Um, and it just sounds like a movie that's a, that's a lot of fun. So good luck, much success, and everything that you continue um, to do and Damson's getting out of here. You guys that listen to the pod know what's coming next. Final segment. Fuck it, I'm bothered. Every day we are reminded that we live in two Americas beyond the Capitol riots. The other story that drove that home involved teenage murderer, Kyle Rittenhouse. So fuck it, I'm bothered that Rittenhouse, who murdered two people, 
during the unrest in Kenosha, Wisconsin, after Jacob Blake was shot by the police. He's in the news because photos surfaced of him living his absolute best life while out on two million dollar bail. Now, uh, Rittenhouse, by the way, is out on bail because in this country, white privilege means having millions raised on your behalf for bail money, despite the fact that he came from his home in Illinois to Kenosha under the guise of helping to protect property that ain't his during the unrest while brandishing an assault rifle. Recently, Rittenhouse was seen in a bar drinking, which apparently you can do in Wisconsin if you are under 21, as long as you're with a parent. And he was there with his mom, who, by the way, was the one who drove her son to Kenosha. Gotta love a mother that takes her kid on a killing spree. Anyway, Rittenhouse was in this bar socializing with people as if he hadn't, in fact, murdered two people last August. In the photos that surfaced, he wore a T-shirt that said free as fuck. He posed for photos with people like he was on a motherfucking red carpet. And several of those photos show him posing and flashing white power signs. According to reports, he also was serenaded with the Proud Boys official song. Because everybody knows you don't go half white supremacist. You got to go full white supremacist. Now, prosecutors want to modify Rittenhouse's bond agreement because it looks really bad when a murderer appears to be out on bail enjoying happy hour. We all know what comes next in this story. I predict, despite killing two people, Kyle Rittenhouse will do far less time than, say, a Black Lives Matter protester. In Utah, some Black Lives Matter protesters are facing life in prison for splashing paint and breaking windows. Two Americas stay unbothered. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify and Unbothered Inc. From Unbothered Inc., Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Rich Burner is our technical director and Evan Dick is our executive producer. From Spotify, supervising producer is Jifa Yador and project manager is Jessica Dow. Our theme music is provided by Corey Greenleaf and Ben Darwish. This or That Music, The Choice is Yours, revisited by Black Sheep. Written by Andres Titus, William K. McLean, and Johnny Hammond from Universal Polygram International Publishing, Inc. on behalf of itself and Peep Bow Music. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. Please remember to subscribe and share with your friends.